when even when you're growing up and you see pictures of yourself and you hear the stories of how many people said, you know, you weren't ever going to be capable of anything, it's going to do one of two things. It'll either break you or it'll light a fire under your tail. Welcome back to the Impact Entrepreneur Show, where we have conversations with entrepreneurs, thought leaders, athletes, best-selling authors who are using their impact moment to have a game-changing impact in the lives of others. I am your host, Mike Flynn, and each week our guest is part of a series such as Mindset, Leadership, Purpose, and we just concluded an incredibly powerful series on belief. Now, this series is all about a warrior's heart. So over the course of the next few weeks, we will take time learning from some of America's greatest warrior leaders and how they are using their experience to have a game-changing impact in the lives of others. I think this is a perfect series to follow up belief because each guest in this series willingly volunteered to place themselves in situations where they had to develop the skills necessary not only to survive, but also to achieve their objectives. And they did so in the midst of many obstacles and challenges. And more importantly, each one faced incredible amounts of adversity. And now they are taking those lessons of leadership and humility and resiliency and have a new mission to impart those lessons to the world. So, Bust out your pens and paper, take some notes, and now let's learn a little bit more about this week's guest in the Warrior's Heart series. Carrie Lorenz learned what fearless leadership means in some of the most demanding and extreme environments imaginable. Imagine this, the cockpit of a F-14 Tomcat where she was one of the first female fighter pilots, the flight deck of an aircraft carrier. Here, she and her teams had to perform at their peak or lives were on the line. In fact, lives were on the line constantly. Faltering leadership was simply unacceptable. And through these experiences, Carrie identified a fundamental truth that high-performing teams require fearless leaders. And so today, we are going to learn about the fundamentals of fearless leadership, courage, tenacity, integrity. We're going to see what that leadership looks like in action, through vision, through culture, through preparation, through resilience. This is an incredibly powerful conversation. Bust out your pens and paper, take some notes, and brace for impact with Carrie Lorenz. Carrie Lorenz, thank you for joining us on the Impact Entrepreneur Show. Welcome. We're excited to have you. Woohoo. Glad to be here. We're going to fly high this morning. <laughs> I had to throw that in. I, I've been I've been told uh, from time to time that I'm very cheesy and punny. So um, uh, that's a shout out to my wife indirectly. Um, you know, you grew up in an incredibly high achieving military family, and I'd love to learn a little bit about what it was like growing up. I actually come from a military family. Also, my dad was a, a major in the United States Army, and uh, so I have a little bit of a taste. But I'd love to get your feedback on what it was like growing up in a high-achieving, high-performing military family. Oh, awesome. Right out of the gate. So yeah, I was lucky. Um, my dad was a former United States Marine Corps aviator. So I have an older brother uh, who's just a year older than me. I always joke that he was much smarter than me. but uh, and And we grew up essentially just playing with 
you know, all of my dad's silk maps and flight gear and helmets and all of that good stuff, uh, you know, pretending that we were going to grow up some someday to be a this awesome warrior aviator just like him. But it was it was interesting that even having a dad that had served uh, as well, and I come from a family that is deeply steeped in service, choosing the military route was never something that he pressured us to do. It was always just there and quietly in the background of the expectation that you will do something of value and be of service to other people. So you know, oftentimes people, and my husband happens to be a former uh, Marine fighter pilot as well. And people think, oh my gosh, you must, you know, line all of your kids up and make them bounce a dime off their made bed in the morning. <laughs> and like we're the, the Von Trapp family or something, but that's not the case. Uh, it was just this quiet expectation of uh, you go out and you do your best and, and very minimum complaining. If, you know, if you can fix it, fix it. If you can do something about it, do something about it. Other than that, suck it up and just keep going. <laughs> so there was a very, there was a very strong thread of that, I think, in our household. I know you said that there wasn't necessarily any pressure to join the military, but more, more of a uh, focus and emphasis on, on service. But was there pressure to perform in general in life and your other activities? No, like I said, I think it was, it was always an expectation of uh, at a minimum, you have to give your best effort. So there was the expectation of doing the work and not complaining about a workload. And that uh, as long as you gave it your best effort, that's, that's awesome. That's fantastic. I, I remember a little side note, even growing up, I'll, I'll give you kind of example of, of that ideology. If my parents went to a parent-teacher conference and I got an A in a class but a teacher said Carrie talked too much or she didn't turn in her homework. When they got home, I would be in trouble. If I got a C in a class and they said, no, she's trying hard, she's doing her homework, you know, good student, keep it up, then that was fine. So it wasn't the expectation of being perfect or being flawless, but it was that you showed up, you were respectful. And you did the work that was being asked of you. And I think there's a difference there. I think that right now, even from a performance perspective, whether it's parents with kids that we have um, or even ourselves, we think that we have to achieve this standard of perfection. And if, if, you know, very quickly right out of the gate, we haven't achieved that, then we must be a failure. And now we're never going to try it again. Have you ever read uh, Carol Dweck's book, Mindset? Yes. Yeah. I mean, like you, you, you just described, I mean, your parents were the forebearers of the growth mindset philosophy without rec recognizing it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And what's important about that research and, and what other studies also show us, if, if uh, your listeners are not familiar with that, is that what she does is that she essentially buckets you uh, and your ability to learn in two different categories. And from a performance perspective and why this does matter for all of us if we're trying to reach a certain level of performance is to understand how we respond to failures because this has such a great impact on what our ability is, is going to be, you know, to be successful in any, any walk of life, whether it's a relationship or sports or, you know, a job that our mindsets, you know, essentially and our belief systems 
determine how well we're going to be able to lead and how well we're going to be able to function. So with a fixed mindset, generally, she says, you know, you tend to fear challenges because a setback is catastrophic. It defines the essence of who you are. And with a growth mindset, it's this belief that with effort and by staying tenacious and that you, you know, my words, that you get knocked down, you scrape your knees, you know, you rub a little dirt in it and and you keep going, that eventually you will get better. And again, the key to this is that whether you look at a cohort of Olympic athletes, uh, military folks, executives, uh, high school athletes, anybody, we all generally fall into one of those two buckets. Again, whether we limit ourselves right out of the gate and, and fear failures or we learn from it and move on. The idea behind it is understanding what your natural tendency is and how you respond to it so that when you're in the midst of it, you can intentionally shift directions. So it's choosing that, you know, to ignore that, that self-talk saying you're not good at this. Who do you think you are? You know, Miss Big Bridges or Mr. Fancy Pants. You know, essentially you suck at that. Don't do that. Um, and go, I'm not going to listen. I'm just going to keep going and learning and trying to get better. I would. I want to pull on that best effort thread a little bit longer because I think it's really important. And there are times where you have to give your relative best effort, you know, relative to what's going on in your life and around you. And I'd love to, one of the things I love to talk about with my guests is how their life, if you listen to their life and you, and you look at their experiences kind of from a 30,000 foot view, which you had a lot of opportunity to look at things from a very high point of view, (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know, the, it's it's really interesting to see how their life has kind of teed them up to launch successfully in the endeavors that they're really driven to do. So for example, you have this mother and father who are very encouraging of your effort, your your effort not necessarily the the outcome but your effort and your focus. And then you move into college, fast forwarding a lot. And at the University of Wisconsin, you are a a very successful varsity rower. You have the opportunity at one point to compete potentially in the Olympics, which is which is amazing. And then you are now in the in the Naval Officer Candidate School specifically for aviation, which is incredibly competitive. So let's talk a little bit more about best effort and how those things prepared you to face what you ultimately faced, which is why we're talking today. Okay. So let's back it up just a little bit though, because it's interesting when I, when I hear you line that out, to me, it almost sounds completely unrelatable. Where <laughs> if I, where if I was listening, I'd be like, oh God, well, okay, well, how am I ever supposed to keep up with that? Right. That's ridiculous. That's not, you know, that sounds like she, you know, is has some superhero exoskeleton on that I can't even compete, so why try? So where I want to kind of back that up a little bit though, is that, you know, I came from I came from pretty humble beginnings insofar as right out of the gate, which is almost remarkable if you ever see pictures of me. I was born and my hips weren't even fully formed. So my parents were told that 
I was never going to be able to walk. I wouldn't be successful. I was going to have a very limited life and that they needed to get ready for that. Uh, And so they were told immediately over and over again that I just wouldn't even be capable and just to learn to accept it. Sorry about that. There's nothing we can do. So, you know, that's devastating certainly for them. But, uh, you know, I ended up having uh, surgery done, corrective surgery. And the first two years of my life, I spent living in a plaster cast that was trying to keep my hips in place so that hopefully they would grow and form and develop. But there were no guarantees of that. So it's interesting that, you know, the expectations of me for, you know, for the first several years of my life was that I wouldn't be able to do anything. So there's this this element, I think, of even right out of the gate of non-acceptance that, you know, they tried to find doctors and they tried to find somebody who, instead of saying, no, no, this is never going to be a possibility for her, that they tried to find somebody who would give them at least a glimmer of hope. And eventually that time came and through, uh, you know, surgery and being casted for a couple of years, I was eventually able to to be able to walk. So I don't know that at you know, that young age, if there's some of that stuff that forms, possibly. But when even when you're growing up and you see pictures of yourself and you hear the stories of how many people said, you know, you weren't ever going to be capable of anything, it's going to do one of two things. It'll either break you or it'll light a fire under your tail. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I was fortunate that I did have parents that tried to find a person that said yes and also probably because of the way I'm wired, that when somebody tells me you can't do that or that'll never happen for you, you're not capable of that, that's not an opening for you. Even though I might be afraid or I 49% believe what somebody's saying or even, you know, on some days, 70%, there's also that little voice inside of me that says, really? Just watch me. And then I'll go for it because I'm more afraid of what if I don't and the regret of not having tried than I am of making a mistake. Now, does that mean I like to make mistakes? No. Does that mean I'm totally fearless and comfortable doing anything? Of course not. Mm -hmm. But I'm more uncomfortable being defined by somebody else telling me no than I am afraid of going for it and going, well, at least I tried. I love that. Yeah, that that's so awesome, and, and you know, it, we just concluded a series on the power of belief, and one of the primary ways to develop belief and confidence in yourself is actually by trying things and doing things. Because even if you, even if you fail at the skill that you're attempting to develop, you still have the shadow of something new that you didn't have before because you you hadn't tried it before, you know? That's right. And and I have to tell you, for I know there are some lines of thought and schools of thought and people out there, and we've all heard it, you know, that just fake it till you make it. Just fake it till you make it. You can fake confidence. I, I'm going to wave a big BS flag on that <laughs> because you can't. Um, because when you're doing that, your psyche and your sense of self, I think, are actually becoming more eroded because you are faking it and you're not being 
authentic. The only way you can develop confidence is getting in there and doing the work. And that means you are going to fail because you earn your confidence. Mm -hmm. Confidence is earned. It's not bestowed. I, again, I'm the fake it till you make it to me drives me nuts. It drives me nuts. I think it sets people up for failure because then they're like, okay, I'm faking it. How come I still don't feel good about myself? Well, because you haven't earned the right to be grounded, to have a foundation of, hey, at least I put in a hundred hours or at least I put in 10,000 hours. I tried, I learned something. Maybe that's not where my talent skill set sits. Right. And, yeah, absolutely. And and we had Mel Robbins on who wrote the five second rule. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and that is a, a great tool for people who are sitting on the fence about, you know, whatever it might be, whether it's getting to the gym or going, you know, putting an application into the Naval Officer Candidate School or whatever it is, you know, five, four, three, two, one it and and take small, urgent steps and and that kind of stuff over and over compounds and you end up building a high degree of not you move from courage to confidence, which is a big important uh, distinction. And, and I'd love to transition into your story with the Navy. And this question comes from Jen, who's a listener. You know, she, she knows a little bit about your background and has read your book and wants to learn a little bit more about why the Navy, why, why did you, you could have done anything mm-hmm. given your, your background and your skills and abilities. Why did you choose the Navy? And uh, what was it like, you know, stepping forward in faith and, and, and applying to that school? That's a great question. Thanks for that, Jen. Uh, for, well, I was drawn to the Navy for a couple of reasons. I love the Navy's focus on mission before self. So, from a culture perspective, uh, I really, really liked that, that it was very, very mission and team oriented. As you alluded to earlier, uh, when I was at the University of Wisconsin, I was a rower and rowing is one of those very odd sports that uh, you have to be an individual, to be good at it, you have to be an individual high performer who also can be a great part of a team because if you're the fastest individual rower but you get put into a team of uh, you know, boat and eight, but you don't row well with others, you don't play nicely with others, you make the boat slower. Doesn't, you, know, you could be the fastest person on the water by yourself, but if you don't play well with others, you will make a boat slower. So I love that. I love that blend between that ideology before, you know, mission before self, while you still have the ability to be the best individual contributor that you can be as well. So I love that. I love that about uh, about the Navy, and that was one of the reasons I, I definitely uh, chose that direction. You know, you going back to your, um, your your previous points on on not faking it till you make it. You entered the Naval Officer Candidate School because you knew you had the skills and abilities to potentially become an aviator, but you didn't. You weren't faking it. You were taking the small, immediate steps necessary to achieve your end goal. Did you kind of roadmap that, that roadmap that out? What was your thought process? <laughs> well, it sounds like there would be a really sophisticated plan in place for this. 
when you when you take aviation officer candidate school, you know it's a 16-week program. And it's very, very heavy uh, from a physical training perspective and from an academic perspective, all based on a foundation of never enough sleep ever. So although you would like to think that, okay, you've really thought this through and you have a plan of attack, uh, quite frankly, more days than not, you had to have the ability to bring it inward and be very, very tactical and have the ability to delay gratification because there were countless times that you'd look at your watch and say, I can make it to 7.30. And this is 7.30 in the morning, right? You've already been at it since five o'clock. And 7.30 hits and you see somebody quit and you're like, oh, no way, man. I'm making it till eight. (laughs) So, you know, it's having that ability to be able to flex psychologically back and forth between, okay, I need to make it, I need to make it 16 weeks because if you don't get this, then you're never going to be able to fly. And everybody shows up with these gorgeous dreams. And I've just wanted to fly fighters ever since I was, you know, four years old, and this is going to be amazing. All of that goes away or can disappear in an instant. When you are face down doing mountain climbers in somebody else's pile of puke. So having that ability to focus on the, and stay in the moment and know that sometimes you just need to stay gritty and grind it out and get through the next 10 minutes is what then gets you to those big lofty goals and dreams. I love that. I love that. You know, I want to read an excerpt from your book that I think is masterfully written. And actually just this one paragraph kind of elevated my heart rate just to even think about the complexity and everything going on. And uh, so here we go. It goes, as my fighter jet tears through the night, I think about the task waiting for me below. I have to land this thing. And it's not going to be easy. It never is. Just ahead, invisible to me, the aircraft carrier is bobbing on a choppy ocean. An aircraft carrier might seem like a big thing, but not from my perspective, not right now. To me, cruising through the impenetrable blackness at roughly 350 miles per hour, the carrier seems about the size of a discarded postage stamp, and I have to land on it. I won't have the luxury of six to 10,000 feet of runway as a military or commercial flight landing at an airport would have. I'll have roughly 300 feet. This is not a task for the faint of heart. I mean, that's how you basically open up the, <laughs> the book. And there's a couple of things that come to mind as I was reading that. First of all, it, it's almost as if you are kind of laughing to yourself a little bit when you're up in the air and not, not in that moment, but when you think about it, it's like, it, it is crazy. I mean, it's, it's like so crazy that it's like a little funny in the, in the sense of how complicated it is to, to do what you guys do in these incredibly expensive aircrafts, uh, out in the in the in the ocean and I'd love for you to walk us through kind of the whole thing to even break down the um the launch a little bit more how long did the whole entire process take uh between getting la- set up and launched and maybe describe th- all of the variables that you have to manage like I interviewed a, a champion athlete a while ago and we were talking about all of the variables that need to be managed in nanoseconds in order to execute a play successfully. And that's on the sport, on the field of sport in the, 
in the field of military execution, the variables are, you know, 10 times that. And not only that, but they are exponentially more valuable and targeted. Yeah, for sure. Well, and it's even even before you get to the point of launching, you know, people don't oftentimes think of that. You know, we see, to, to your point, we see these Olympic athletes and these great athletes who are doing these amazing, you know, sport feats. And we're like, oh, I want to do that. But they don't realize the the overwhelming workload that went into actually getting them to that place, the very uh, unglamorous part of the doing the work. And just even from a flying perspective, we spend quite quite a bit of time preparing, uh, planning, and briefing with our teams, uh, studying. So we, you know, we've got emergency procedures memorized. We understand all the fuel systems, electronics, you know, the radar systems, the threats out there, all different aircraft. But then once we actually go and, and we go out to that airplane on that flight deck, now we have to take all that individual knowledge and still be able to work again very, very closely in this tight team. And what's fascinating about, to me anyway, the Navy and Marine Corps aviators are the only pilots, the only fighter pilots uh, in the world who will even attempt to land on land high-speed fighters on an aircraft carrier at night uh, because it's so complex uh, and it's exceptionally dangerous. So when when you do that, when you think about that, that nobody else in the world will even make an attempt to land a high speed jet, you know, on a on a pitching, bobbing postage stamp, running away and hiding <laughs> in the worst weather it can possibly find, then you'll understand that there's a certain level of fear that is going to be involved in this. So as we're, you know, as we're working to try to get launched in in the pitch dark night, you know, we're we're watching all the taxi signal directions and we've got sweat running down our back. And, you know, because you don't want to taxi off the edge of the deck inadvertently if somebody else isn't paying attention because there's only a four inch little scupper or a bumper that keeps your 60,000 pounds from falling over the edge of the, the whole aircraft carrier. So that's that's a little unnerving at night because you can't see it. But then, you know, then we we go through this whole launch process and you have to be, con, you know, consider of, of what if everything doesn't go well? What if you get a cold cat shot, which means it didn't have enough velocity to actually get you off and now you drop off into the pitch black and you have to make that split second decision. Do I eject or do I try to fly the airplane? Um, so all of this is going through your mind. At the same time, you're having to stay calm, cool and collected so that you can make good decisions. Mm. So a lot of this is about having that ability to control the adrenaline that's happening and control the fear and have that bias to act and still be able to feel that fear and go for it anyway as you're launched into that night sky. So it's it's constantly reprioritizing what is a massive amount of inputs and information to the things that must be done and must be attended to right now. And I think there's actually a lot to be learned from that, that when you think about how we're able to switch in and out of these really complex environments to boiling things down to three to five things while we're keeping situational awareness, that everybody can learn from because it's all about span of control and your ability 
to focus on what matters most in a high stress environment. That's what it is. And it's a skill set. It's such a powerful lesson because you kicked it off by taking us back into the into all the preparation mm-hmm. that goes into that launch. And it's it's kind of a great illustration of what we see in the entrepreneurial world today. We only see the launch, the the sexy part of the the entrepreneurial world, the people that have, you know, hit it big or made seven figures or whatever the 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 headline is in the entrepreneurial world, but we don't see all of the work. We don't see the sweat. We don't see the uh, you know, all of the people in the red and yellow shirts and helmets supporting them to to get them to that point where they can launch. And it's something that I think your story can help us to really appreciate. Yeah, there's a lot of talk about courage in the entrepreneurial space. And we we kind of started, you kind of started to talk about courage just a little bit, not directly, but your story is striking because you're you are breaking barriers and cultures while people are judging you left and right. And ultimately, you are a very talented uh, Navy aviator who is combat ready, and yet you you don't get the chance to fulfill your dreams and use your skills and abilities to the to the degree that you are capable of. And and this question comes from Jeff, who's a listener of the show. And what were the keys to overcoming these obstacles that you faced? Well. I think I think whether you're you're striving to be a fighter pilot or you're an entrepreneur or you're just simply trying to figure things out. Success in any kind of position or leadership position, not just in the military, uh, is going to require you to have a clear vision and understand for you what does success look like. If if we if we kind of kick it up to that 30,000 foot level. And you think about the aircraft carrier, you know, that the top, that flight deck of an aircraft carrier is one of the world's most dangerous industrial work sites in the world. And when you have an average age of 19 to 19 and a half, uh, so folks who are mostly, you know, freshly out of high school or what we tend to call millennials now, <laughs> um, you know, you, you're launching planes at close to 200 miles an hour that's seven stories above the waterline. You have to understand what your vision is and what success looks like and what your purpose is. So when you have that, when you understand what your vision is and what success looks like, that is what eventually will help you get focused on doing the things that matter most. Too often right now, I think that we think, well, this is what I said I wanted to do and I'm going for it, but all these things keep getting in my way. Or you have a setback. You, you know, you take the concrete block to the face that you never saw coming, that you know, maybe you actually are the most talented in this environment. Uh, maybe you have the best app. Maybe you have the, the world-changing widget literally sitting on your coffee table you know, in your house. But then suddenly something hits you from out of the blue. That could be a tragic setback. And what do you do with that? You know, there's there's an enormous amount of competition that vies for your attention. And there are immutable number of things 
that will try to get in your way. So what do you do when you run into these roadblocks, right? This goes back to having that mindset and having the mentality of this is where I want to go, recognizing there are going to be problems. So how do you get through that? You know, because everybody, everybody is going to face adversity at one point or another. And what I, what I share with, with folks that I coach and what I, you know, try to teach my kids is that when you find your, you know, yourself in a hot spot, when you find yourself struggling is that adversity will introduce you to yourself. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't feel like it at the time, but I have yet to meet a high performer, again, whether that's an athlete, a successful entrepreneur, anybody that once you start digging in, hasn't had tremendous setbacks, but they've figured out, they've learned from them. It makes them stronger and they figure out the path through instead of thinking that you're going to avoid it. You know, that's an an incredible lesson also. And and, uh, I was just listening to an interview with, um, on the Art of Charm, which is Jordan Harbinger's podcast, and he had uh, Admiral McRaven on, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and Admiral McRaven talked about how he built. He specifically talked about the millennials and how he it upsets him that they get so much criticism because he had the privilege of of working with so many mm-hmm. uh, who were in charge of you know not only millions of dollars, billions of dollars worth of equipment, but also had to work in one cohesive unit, regardless of race, religion, or creed, and how powerful it is that when you, when you have a mission, that all of that other stuff falls by the wayside, and you are able to become one cohesive unit. And you mentioned vision, which is incredibly important. And one of the things that I teach is the the four pillars of peak performance, and P stands for position, E for engagement, A for action, and K for kinetic. And engagement, we, in that section, we talk about the importance of vision and specifically actually visualizing things before you actually execute them. And while you're in that process of visualizing, like a champion, uh, like an athlete, or like yourself probably, on that, on the top side of the ship, ready, ready, getting ready to launch uh, on that deck, you have to visualize how you want things to go, what you're gonna, what your objectives are, but you also have to mix in some adversity in there, pretend adversity, because it's going to equip you with the ability to overcome adversity when you actually do face it in real time. Oh, for sure, you know, and I think that's one of the biggest. Uh, missing pieces uh, that that I see, or even when that's when it's talked about, is vision important? Absolutely, it's absolutely critical. I, I've dedicated a chapter of it <laughs> uh, in in my book, but to it in my book because it is that important. Without that, you're just going to go nowhere fast. However, the one piece after that that I see people miss in that preparation phase in the the planning phase that all too often we don't want to address the negative things that'll happen. Uh, we see it all of the time. Every day there is a corporation that has Equifax, 
right now, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, what if it? What if our systems get hacked? What is there going to be our viable plan in place? Oh, that'll never happen. That would be that would destroy us. How we're not going to talk about that, right? So, but being prepared and being informed about what can go wrong allows you to adapt when things go wrong. Um, and and you see it with with organizations when they're doing business plans or strategic planning. Um, the majority of them do not have an exit strategy. You know, what are we going to do when the stuff hits the fan? What if, you know, what if somebody sues us? What if we're teetering on bankruptcy? What if there's another new entrance, you know, in, an entrant into the marketplace that we didn't see coming? Oh, no, 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 we're not going to talk about that. That would be terrible. Well, when you don't talk about the things that go wrong, when you don't have an exit strategy, it, it doesn't allow you to be adaptable thereby that's what can be catastrophic failures in an instant when you actually could have planned for it and figured out how could you adjust. This episode is brought to you by the Lawton Marketing Group, a full-service advertising and design agency specializing in websites, social media, apps, logos, and more. Based in Oklahoma, They work with clients across the nation from small businesses to large corporations and everything in between. You can find them right now on the web at www.lawtonmg.com or call them at 580-275-2063. Connect with them now for a complimentary competitive analysis of your website. Just tell them the impact entrepreneur told you to call. Another characteristic I think that is is really important that you talk about in the book and you dedicate another chapter to is is tenacity. You know, choice. The word choice is a really important word in the English language. Also, I interviewed uh, Lou Holtz a while back, and he said out of four hundred and twenty-two thousand words in the English vocabulary, vocabulary that choice is is the most important, and we have a choice about whether or not we're going to be tenacious and you don't hear it a lot today you hear more about grit mm-hmm. but i'd i'd love to talk about that very important question that we have to ask ourselves and you pose it in the the book which is how bad do i want this yeah well I think that we've diluted ourselves into, and you mentioned it even earlier about what we perceive success to be. And right now there's so much in front of us. You know, some people call it FOMO, the fear of missing out, or, you know, we watch, we follow somebody on Instagram and we think, holy moly, you know, they've got two yellow Lambos in front of their house. You know, look how (laughs) successful they are. They're this great entrepreneur. And what they don't realize is that, you know, those guys rented it for, rented that set of Lambos for two hours for the photo shoot and they actually don't even own a car, right? Um, But this idea of being tenacious, I think is so critical because, it is, it is having that ability that when things get tough, that you can work hard, that you make the choice to work hard, and that you realize that the most successful people aren't just swaddled in luck or more opportunities or more resources than you have. Um, they do the things that they know they need to do when they don't feel like doing it. Mm. And that's the difference. And it's it's making the choice. It's making the choice to stick with it when it's hard, when you're tired, when you're exhausted, when 
everybody is telling you, you're never going to be successful at this. Why would you do this? It's that you choose to step up and go for it anyway. Yeah, I think it's it's an important thing because we're, we're going to get told no a lot in our life. Mm-hmm. We're going to get told no. We're going to get told not now. And and I've been one of the, one of the positive criticisms I've received over my career is that I'm a tenacious person. And when you believe in something, when you have a mission or you think that you can create value or the person you're trying to connect with can add tremendous value to your life or the lives of others, it makes it easier to be tenacious. And and I think that we give up too easily today. We we're we're used to this instant gratification. Mm-hmm. The mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I'm, I don't know about you, but I've, I've certainly fallen victim to posting something on Instagram or on Facebook. And then five minutes later, checking to see if anybody's liked it, you know, <laughs> and it's such a trap. It, it is such a trap and it, yeah. and, um, it, it's vanity and we get so obsessed with these vanity statistics. And when things don't happen immediately, we, we give up and we, we go to the gym for, you know, two months in, in January and February. And we, when we don't see immediately immediate results, you know, suddenly there, all the, the elliptical machines and weight uh, equipment is, is available mm-hmm. again, you know, cause people quit and what can, can people do to develop tenacity? If they've not had a, a setback in their life early that has required them to develop resilience and to develop the ability to overcome obstacles, what can they do today, right now, to begin to develop tenacity? Well, that's a great question because it's, again, this goes back to your mindset and whether you believe other people have things easier or that you're just not gifted in something, so which, which allows yourself, you're essentially giving yourself permission to quit. That if you don't believe that you can work to get better and that getting better is going to take a lot of effort, then you're giving yourself you know, permission to quit right out of the gate. But having that, the ability to keep after something, to learn, to fail, it, you know, it's like a muscle. There's no better way to build tenacity than by taking action. You have to take action Again, this is all about taking action. It's about having that bias to act. In order to build tenacity, you have to actually do something. You have to take action. Like this is a must. It is an imperative to take action when you feel stuck, when you're frustrated, when you feel like a failure, or maybe you're really intimidated. Take action anyway. You don't become more tenacious simply because you say, boy, I wish I was more tenacious or I'm going to be gritty because I read a book about grit. (laughs) It's not like putting on a green sweatshirt, right? That now all of a sudden you're gritty because I have the sweatshirt, right? It's again, it goes back to that fake it till you make it thing that drives me nuts. You know, the difference between who you are and who you want to be is what you do. And that is going to require you to take action. There's no other way through that. 
And again, people are, you know, often are like, oh, that's too hard or you're different. You just have a different mindset. No, it's that I understand that I can either sit here and think something to death or ruminate about it or be frustrated or feel victimized. And why me? I can't believe this happened to me. It's not, it's so unfair. Or you can go, what can I control? What's under my control? And take action and choose to make a different decision. How did that play out when in, in your story? Like decisions were being made for you, even though you had all of the ability and talent, just as equal as everybody else out there. The, you know, the powers that be made decisions that didn't allow you to fully execute your your skills and talent. So how how, how did you deal with the emotional toll of that? So I think that's a uh, that's something that. You know, all of us are going to find ourselves in a situation at at one point in our lives or another. If we are out there and going going for something, if we're trying to accomplish something, if we're pushing the the edges of the envelope, if you will, we're going to run into resistance and people that are going to tell us no or sit us down when we don't think it's fair or we think we're qualified. But as a life skill. I think the thing that allows people to get through this and and something that as leaders, I think it's incumbent upon us to understand how to grow and develop within ourselves individually and within our teams is resiliency. And it's that ability to withstand and recover from and even adapt in, in the face of stressors and changing situations and enormous setbacks. Resiliency is, is that thing that you're going to have to call upon when you face major life-changing circumstances. You know, again, those things that you don't see coming and maybe something that you didn't have, you didn't cause through any action of your own. Um, but it's resiliency is what you need uh, to have when everything blows up in your face. Uh, when again, it feels like you've been hit hit with that concrete block. So I think that that one of the things, and actually it's what my next book is going to be about, is this idea of span of control and what can you control? Where can you effect a change and where can't you? And if you can't, if you truly can't do something about the situation, then choose a different response. Choose a different way. You have to find your way through those obstacles if you can't get around them. You just have to soldier on and go through them. I think in addition to resilience, another element of resilience almost is is, uh, integrity because in order to be resilient, it requires you to, to bounce back, to get back up without sacrificing who you are or the mission or, mm-hmm. or your identity or whatever it is. And, and that is an, an area in the, in the world today that is lacking, that, that there's a shortfall of integrity. There's a shortfall of people actually following through on their word or succumbing to pressure to take shortcuts. And that's at all levels, I believe. And, and yet it's something that I believe we can develop we can control to to go back to your whole span of control. It is our integrity is something that is only in our control. So 
what tools can we deploy to build self-awareness around that? Because I believe it's going to become more and more important as time goes on and the speed of business accelerates and trust continues to be eroded. Right. No, no doubt. And I think, you know, obviously, uh, if you if you go back to my situation when it comes to courage and tenacity and integrity, you know, we had to be able to lead uh, ourselves well and still make good decisions while we're traveling at the speed of sound. And I, I, I think the same thing is happening right now in business and just in our personal relationships, right? You would think that integrity and even having a chapter in a book about integrity would be the shortest chapter in the book because common sense would tell you, just do the right thing. Like, how hard is that? But as we can see, it's a challenge for clearly people to be making decisions with integrity right now that then have enormously tragic effects for lots of people. And that's, you know, I think we forget at times, again, it goes back to what success should look like and putting, you know, what are we going to put ourselves ahead of stakeholders? Are we going to put our own interests ahead of our teammates? And if you do that, that is not fearless leadership. That there's no way that that is going to end well. Mm-hmm. So in, integrity for me is is certainly a very integral part of being a fearless leader. How do you have that resolve? How do you you operate with integrity under difficult difficult circumstances? Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because every every bit of um, research out there today, whether it's research that's been done within military cohorts and leadership development programs, uh, McKinsey, Deloitte. Everybody says that integrity is on the decline, which is fascinating to me because it's one of those things where you say, you know, what, what is the joke? 85% of people believe that they're a really good driver, right? And you're like, well, <laughs> then who are all the other people not using their blinkers, <laughs> cutting everybody up? Because, you know, who, if the 85% believe they're good drivers, who are the people that are not if we all think we're doing a great job? But one of the things that I think I would, I would ask people to be mindful of, that when we're operating in a really rapidly changing environment, when we see what appears to be this enormous success from so many people who you know, only show their absolute best sides on social media, is that it tends to make you want to do a life hack right? Cut a corner. Where's the easy button? Where's the fast button? I need this now, now, now. But from an integrity perspective, be very mindful and you know, put it on a post-it note and put it on your computer or on the back of your phone. That cutting corners never leads to excellence. Mm, mm. You may have a short-term win. You may have a little bit of a bounce. But cutting corners will never lead to excellence. That's a quote right there. <laughs> yeah, well, you I mean, know, so it's so true. It is, and and we can talk about purpose and we can talk about vision and success or failures. But when you live with integrity, what what happens is that you understand the gritty hard-working part of the journey is what is going to give you the ability to stand in mm-hmm. integrity. Mm-hmm. And it's only through making that investment and making that commitment that you embrace the things that go wrong and you figure out how to fix them 
instead of taking shortcuts and these life hacks to easy and then wonder why you don't feel good about the outcome and you actually don't have any confidence. It's because you hacked your way to a short-term result instead of building something that gets you to a point of excellence. You know, integrity, it really is the foundation of of everything. And it's something that I think is an after. The reason I think it's in, sh- in shortfall or short supply today is because it's an afterthought when really it should be the the beginning of the conversation and a decision that's made at the launch uh, of anything or before the launch of anything. And yet it, it's something that we, we don't quite think about. You, we make mistakes along the way. You know, we, we, we might be a person of integrity and yet we, there might be times where we, our humanity gets in in the way of our, our integrity and we make mistakes and it's so important to not give up on the integrity when you make a mistake, rather own it. And that even, you know, fortifies your integrity. Absolutely. And that's one of the things that we uh, that we would attempt to do certainly in in the aviation world, even in so uh, in in our brief, in our debrief process, right? Because every time every flight that we had, we would debrief it. So we would finish our flight, and then you know we come back in, and we want to very very quickly figure out what went right and what went wrong. And how can we fix it? And this is about owning your mistakes. It is about being accountable. You know, accountability to me right now feels like such a four-letter word. <laughs> we talk about it, but yet when, when it gets down to it, we have oftentimes there are cultures in, in uh, organizations that, you know, we talk about we want to be the most innovative culture. We're going to be this great entrepreneur. And, and yet when mistakes happen, everybody wants to shove it under the rug and turn and look the other way. And what happens is that when you don't have a culture of accountability, uh, when people are afraid to admit their mistakes, that's where the integrity starts to break down. That's where the trust starts to break down and you stop learning. So we can have these great aspirational quotes. We can say, oh, we support innovation and we're a culture of excellence, but you don't because you're not, you're not figuring out and you haven't realized that it's not about who is right. It's about what is right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And when we understand that, when we can depersonalize the making of mistakes, what happens is that then you start to grow as a team, you trust each other, and you know you're going to get better. It's it's like the Blue Angels. Every debrief the Blue Angels have, they sit around the table, the boss says, hey, this is what we were going to do, this is what I saw, this is the mistake I made, I can fix it. So now everybody else around the table realizes, holy moly, you know, the head guy realizes he made a mistake, he said he can fix it, fair enough, right? Now you don't have any elephants in the room. Because what happens otherwise? It, rare is the, the, the chance or the situation that people don't know when something is screwed up. And yet when you're sitting in a meeting and nobody will admit to it, now you've fundamentally broken the trust within your team. And there's no way you'll ever have a high-performing team when they don't trust each other. I love the, the military's tradition and, and uh, protocol of doing these after-action reports and reviews mm-hmm. and debriefs. 
and and it, it's not done in in the business world nearly enough. People are literally flying by the seat of their pants and not not analyzing when things go well or when things go wrong. And I love the word reflection because reflection means to bend back time and direct light or heat onto something. And if we just take a few minutes, it doesn't even need to be a long time. Like you might have had a, you know, uh, an hours long mission, but it might take a third of the time or a quarter of the time to go back and analyze what went well and what didn't go well and how you can fix it. And, and obviously the fastest way to build credibility among your peers and your superiors is by producing results. But the second fastest way to build credibility is by admitting when things didn't go right or you made a mistake. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, again, this is why we debrief immediately after every flight because team performance And there are very, very few of us, even as solo entrepreneurs, that would say or be able to say that in some way, shape, or form, they're not working within a team somehow, because you're part of a community regardless. Team performances is about both individual and and mutual accountability and improvement and this commitment to learning. And we can't be pointing the finger at everybody else all the time. If, if you want to be a fearless leader, it starts with you. And you are the model that your teammates, your family members, your coworkers will pattern themselves after. So we always take that time to debrief because, uh, you know, certainly in our environments, we want to increase the chance of success. So in a business environment, if you are looking to increase your chance of long-term success, if you're not debriefing, you're missing a really critical step because it improves your ability to learn, to anticipate not only your next move and what could go wrong, but also your competitions. So it's the fastest way to get better and improve and reduce your time to insight. So whether you're a fighter pilot or you are trying to figure out how to have a better go-to-market plan or a sales plan, or maybe you're trying to debrief a launch that went very poorly, unexpectedly. Uh, The debrief is critical to, to figure out not only your execution, but what worked and what didn't work. Mm, I love what you just said a moment ago, reduce the time to insight too, because that Mm -hmm. is such a profound concept because insight will give you the ability to you know, not make the same mistake again. Right. And this, again, this is not about life hacking. This is not about hitting an easy button. It, it's taking a very straightforward and very simple process. You know, you ask yourself, okay, so five easy questions. Anybody can ask themselves as they're working, trying to work through a situation or a problem or a challenge um, and figuring out again, what, what are my next steps? How do I move forward? You know, you can ask yourself these five questions. Essentially, okay, what was supposed to happen? What actually happened? Why were there differences? What can I learn from that? And how do I incorporate that lesson? How do I incorporate that lesson learned next time? Because again, what we're trying to do is we're trying to apply these lessons very quickly to what is under our span of control. So when, you, when you've when you had success, 
do the exact same thing. You know, too often I work with teams and organizations that are, you know, they're killing it. They're doing a great job out there. And then I say, are you debriefing? They're like, no, we're hitting all of our numbers right now. And I'm like, well, something's going to sneak up on you and ninja throat chop you because you don't know, if you don't know exactly why you're being this successful, how are you going to replicate it? Yeah, Uh, that's so true. Yeah, you've gotten lucky and you've settled into complacency. And and that's a very scary place to be. You know, as we begin to uh, wrap up our conversation, which has been phenomenal, I I do have a few more questions, but I want to make sure that we take a moment to pause and let people know where they can connect with you online and get your incredible book and follow your airplane journeys from uh, uh, (laughs) one speaking engagement to another. I know. I don't don't take a lot of selfies. I take a lot. tend to post more out the airplane window shots. But uh, anybody can reach me at carrylorenz.com, C-A-R-E-Y-L-O-H-R-E-N-Z.com. My book is available on uh, Amazon or Barnes & Noble. Uh, If you want to get some for a team, 800 CEO Reads is awesome. But it's Fearless Leadership. Uh, and that's high performance lessons from the flight deck. So, and obviously, I'm on I'm on all the social media channels. So, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat. Although I just Snapchat with my kids, so you're not going to see a lot there. I had another listener named Ryan reach out, and he was really excited about our conversation today because he has a young daughter who is interested in becoming a fighter pilot um, at some point. And, and she did not think that she could be a fighter pilot because she was a girl. And so, oh. and so oh, they, my heart. and so they went online and they found you uh, and they were watching videos of you and, and learning about your story. So if you were sitting across the table from Ryan's daughter, what would you say to her? <sighs> Ooh, that's a great question. So uh, Ryan, take note, I have four kids and I also have three girls. So I think I would have a, a couple of things. My first one would be to just get comfortable being uncomfortable. That this means that you are going to have to get used to having that lump in your throat or a pit in your stomach. And don't think that's a bad thing. Know that the only way you're going to get better is if you become accustomed to that feeling of discomfort, right? So so get comfortable being uncomfortable. The second thing that I would uh, say is never play small. Uh, And what do I mean by that? I think too often that, uh, I think too often women try to play small. I think we try to not make people uncomfortable. I think we try to collaborate and get along and not be disruptive. And yet for women in particular and girls, and I see this, I see this starting in middle school, girls start pulling back and they think they need to be liked by everybody. They think they need to be a certain body weight. They, they definitely stop celebrating their talents and abilities um, because they don't want to be disruptive. But what happens is that when you play small, when you try to fly under the radar, you are now diminishing everything that makes you valuable and you've lost your voice. And playing small serves nobody. Mm. 
Mm. So I think that's huge. And get in the arena. Don't be afraid, right? Go out and just go out and go for it. Take the first step. And, you know, one of the things that my dad used to always tell me was that oftentimes the people who tell you you can't and you won't are the ones who are most afraid that you will. Mm. Dude, wow. I just got truth bumps right now. Yes. You know, and what you were saying to Ryan's daughter is applicable to men and women alike, boys and girls of any age. I mean, like it's 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 incredible advice and and we shouldn't play small and we shouldn't treat we shouldn't play small by treating others small along the way as well. I think too often even what I see is that sometimes people think that, well, if I shine my light really brightly on somebody else, then nobody will see me like it makes you dimmer somehow. And yet that's so not, not true. Yeah, totally. No, you know, it, 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 that definitely, you know, if you have an, an abundant mindset versus a a scarce mindset, you know, I'm, I'm really focused on abundant generosity right now. That's one of my mantras is that I'm, I'm, I'm abundant. I'm abundantly generous. And I love that. I'm writing that down. And um, it's not like, not just, in terms of my time, but more importantly about my praise, because it's really easy for us to sit behind a computer screen and see someone else's success. Um, maybe we started out at the same point in life or, or in career, and they're more successful than we are for whatever reason. It's really easy to become jealous and envious, but that you have no power there. Rather, if you are abundantly generous with your praise and affirmation, you are you remain powerful. Oh, for sure. And I think we we get this all tangled up, you know, this idea and, and you'll see people, and again, on social media, oh, I'm so grateful, I'm so grateful. And yet in conversation or in other actions, you can tell they're operating from a place of entitlement. Mm-hmm. And I can't believe this. Well, you can't hold those two values at the same time. You can't say that you're grateful and truly be present and be grateful if you're also feeling entitled. Mm-hmm, totally. Which is where the work piece comes in, right? It's it's being grateful for the opportunity. It's being grateful for what you have at the same time being exceptionally mindful. In my mind, none of that matters if while you're moving forward, you don't have a hand behind you bringing somebody with you. Amen to that. Last three questions. And there, there, there's some big ones. There's some big ones. Um, but, but they're, they're fun, I think. And, um, the first is if you could pick a skill set, and I ask these of all my guests, by the way, if you could pick a skill set you currently possess and turn it into a superpower, what would it be? Pick a skill set. Wow. See, this is the first time I think I'm speechless. A skill set I currently have and turn it into a superpower. Yeah. Like, like what would you, what is a skill set that you would like a thousand X if you could? Well, okay. So this is going to be, this is going to be, just know that this is like totally arbitrary and very superficial. (laughs) (laughs) So I feel like, okay. So just be mindful of that on my response. I feel like I have really good survival skills. And yet, the one thing that I am enamored with and I find fascinating, like years ago when, um, what was it, alias, Jennifer Garner, like she's like this super like spy girl and ninja and is really sweet and smart, but can like get in and out of foreign countries and accomplish amazing things and nobody ever sees her. 
like that. Mm. Mm. But again, that's a totally superficial one. I love it. No, that's fun. That's but a fun I can't answer. be. I'm six feet tall. I can't blend in anywhere. So that is unattainable for me, actually. <laughs> that's why it truly would be a superpower. That, that is right. You could you 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 have to be like, what's that comic character, Ant Man or something like that, where you have to press a button and you shrink down into yeah. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Like I said, it's superficial, but what are three lies that prevent us from realizing our full potential? And as you as you answer that question, I would like you to think about your four kids. Okay, three lies that you tell yourself? Three lies that we tell ourselves that prevent us from realizing our full potential. The first one, everybody else has it easier. I would think that would be one. I don't you know what? I think that's my main one. Mm, awesome. Because awesome. I think it actually, I think it actually wraps up into everything because this goes back to mindset mm-hmm. of what you believe your abilities are. And that if you have a mindset that's holding you back or that you think other people are smarter or more gifted or more talented, that that is about that at the end of the day, we think other people have it easier. Mm. Number okay, so number two, it would be that that you don't have a choice, um, that, well, this is the way you're wired, or this is your personality. I am big, I am big into the, you always get to choose how you think about setbacks and how you respond. So you do have a choice. So don't ever think you don't have a choice. So another lie. Uh, the third one would be that when I've, when, uh, that optimists are fools. Hmm. I think that's a lie hmm. because I think and, and I share this with, again, with folks that I coach, people that I speak with, and with my kids all the time. I think it's really important to have a positive attitude because, because a positive attitude doesn't guarantee your success, but a negative attitude kills your ability to adapt. Mm, I love that. Those are, those are three powerful eyes that you just gave us the ability to overcome. So thank you very much. This is the final question and it's a big one. And it's the title of a book written by a guy named Clay Christensen. And the question is, how will you measure your life? If I make an impact positively for other people, and if I raise four good kids that go out to be of service to our community and our country, that to me is success. Carrie Lorenz, thank you so much for joining us on the Impact Entrepreneur Show. This was an incredible conversation and I know that I gained a lot and I'm confident that my listeners will have taken copious notes and will begin to execute the things that you've talked about in their lives immediately. Thank you. Thank (laughs) you. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Carrie, thank you so much for joining us on the Impact Entrepreneur Show. Such a powerful interview. And you're right. Being a fearless leader, following courage, being tenacious and gritty certainly is not for the faint of heart. Thank you for sharing your wisdom and your insight. And I can't wait to have the follow-up conversation about risk. As with most things, we had such a powerful conversation after I stopped hitting record. And so Carrie and I are going to have a a round two where we talk specifically about taking risk. If you want to buy her book, which I encourage you to do, head over to the show notes, 
at www.theimpactentrepreneur.net forward slash 85 for the key points, the highlights and links to her book and everything else we mentioned in the show there at the show notes. And while you're there, be sure to check out the Lot Marketing Group and the Podcast Masters. We could not do this show without them. Until next time, you know what to do. Go make an impact. Oh,